he tried to get away and I grabbed him and there was a bit of a tussle and uh, got away again and so I sort of tackled him from behind in the middle of the street. So here's this bloke running for re-election in a suit in one of the main streets of Masterton and sort of getting into fisticuffs with some bloke holding what I subsequently found out was a 10-inch plumber's spanner which could have done some damage if he'd uh, been able to wield that. Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. It's a political podcast where we chat about issues affecting Kiwis. Cases of COVID-19 to report in managed isolation in New Zealand. We talk to Kiwis from all sides of the political aisle. What has the government delivered? Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Steve O'Ely, and we hope you enjoy our show. Hello, everybody. I'm just going to start with some housekeeping. Now, obviously, there hasn't been an episode released in a couple of months. The reason for this is a combination of things. One being that we had a guest cancel, and then a second guest was sick, so we had to postpone their interview to later this year. It is a podcast that I'm doing outside of work hours, so there are some challenges with that. Over time, I aim to grow it to the point that I can spend more time on the podcast once we grow the podcast enough i'll look to release episodes fortnightly and then potentially weekly i've decided to change the podcast release date to the first day of the month regardless of what day of the week it is this month i had the pleasure of speaking to karen mcanulty who's the labor mp for the wairarapa We spoke at length about his role as an electorate MP and representing the people of the Wairarapa. Due to his farming background, we also talked about the hell of a protest and his views on it. We also touched on the $2.75 million apparently going to the mongrel mob and got a better understanding of what is actually going on there. I really enjoyed talking to Kieran. He clearly cares about uh, the people that he represents. So I hope you enjoy this month's episode. Thanks for the support so far. If you do like this podcast, please do share it with your friends. You can also visit us on Twitter or Instagram at nz underscore pod. Looking forward to any feedback. And again, cheers for the support so far. And if you do really like it, please do give us a five-star rating on the podcast app. So thanks again, Kieran, for coming on the podcast. Just to start us off, can you tell us a bit about your background growing up in the Wairarapa? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, growing up here, it's a pretty special place, and uh, it gets in your blood. Even those that have either stayed their whole lives or gone away and come back or gone away and haven't yet come back always speak fondly of it. I think it's the the people that make it special, but it's also, uh, you know, we are a unique little valley, close access to native bush and close access to the sea and close to Wellington as well with a commuter route and good weather and and it just sticks with you. So, you know, when I was doing my uni thing or my overseas playing rugby and all that sort of stuff, everyone would want to talk about where I was from. Some people in Ireland would say, what part of Australia you're from? They'd be very presumptuous, but I... 
sort of took that as an opportunity to talk about not only Wairarapa but also New Zealand. And they sort of hadn't heard of it. Um, they'd heard of Martinborough. Some had heard of the Golden Shears, but not really Wairarapa. And yeah. uh, and I really enjoyed that role of talking about the region and encouraging people to come along. And, and it's that sort of passion that I've tried to bring into this role as the MP. So you mentioned you went to uni. So what did you study? And then what was your sort of career path before going into politics? Uh, yeah, I, I went to Otago and I went down there with the intention of studying psychology. Um, always fascinated by people, interested in people, keen to talk to them. And, you know, the idea of, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew it wanted to be with something about, to do with people. So I went down there, signed up to all these classes for psychology, and but did a interest paper in politics. And yeah. that interest paper happened to have been the first lecture that I went to and politics 101 and uh at the end of that lecture i went over to the registry and changed my major over to politics and i just thought no this is me but it was a bit of a gamble you know not there's far more people that try to get into politics than actually succeed so i knew that there was i couldn't really rest on this i didn't want to go down the whole working from parliament but if i was going to get into parliament i wanted to do it from the uh, private sector um, what some people deem the real world, but at the same time, like you, you, you want politicians that can relate to the region that they're representing, but you also want politicians that know how to be a politician. And you yeah. know, when you think of some of the most successful politicians in recent history, they've all had some connection to Parliament prior to getting in, and they are the ones that hit the ground running, and they are the ones that often succeed. So I think that balance is important but it shouldn't be too heavily weighted to one or the other. After doing uni, went over to Ireland to play rugby. That's where both sides of the family are from, so there's a bit of a connection there. Just wanted what to get away. Oh, I, well, they had me out in the wing, and playing wing, like I'm a halfback, but playing wing in Ireland is not much fun because the weather's <laughs> pouring down and the wind is howling across the rugby ground and, and your hands are frozen and... You only get two chances to drop the ball when inevitably, um, two chances to grab the ball, I should say, and inevitably end up dropping one of them. Yeah, so it's not, it's, it wasn't great, but the people were good fun and the pub was always warm afterwards and I had the time of my life over there, so um, that was great. But then came back in the middle of the global financial crisis and there weren't many jobs going. So ended up actually uh, just getting a job as a case manager at Work and Income here in Marston, and that was sort of the only job going, really. Uh, because I, I sort of felt like I could have taken others and um, and I did toss up about getting into a trade or something if I could. There weren't many opportunities for those, but I felt like, you know, I'd been to uni. There was sort of pressure. Maybe it was just perceived pressure, but pressure from the family to use the degree. And so I yeah, took the job at Work and Income and first time I've ever been into a Work and Income office. Uh, very fortunate in that respect. And... Uh, it was an eye-opening experience, and that was an experience that I sort of refer to in my own mind from time to time when uh, dealing with people here locally or considering issues that are related to welfare at Parliament. But it's funny, one of the things when I get asked to go to schools to talk about careers and all those sort of things is just to take whatever opportunity comes up because you never know what that will lead to and you never know when you'll need the skills that you learn in that opportunity. Like, it was the... Uh, weirdly, 
it was the job at work and income that made me aware of the opportunity working as a bookmaker at the TAB because, you know, those jobs come through the office all the time. And because I had worked in a bookmaker's office whilst playing rugby in Ireland, that, that was enough experience for me to get in. So I did that for seven years and absolutely loved it. Stood for Parliament for the first time in 2014 as a bookmaker and realised that pretty quick that there was a reason that a bookmaker had never been elected to Parliament. <laughs> Maybe I should go and get a different job. And, um, well, you've now achieved it, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose I have, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I wasn't a bookie when I got in. I, I, I became the Economic Development Manager at the Marston District Council. And so, that, you know, on the face of it, it seems like these are jobs that you're jumping around a fair bit. But at the bookmaking job, learnt to understand numbers, analyse, report back. Also got heaps of experience doing things like uh, television presentations and uh, media interviews. And uh, so it was the analysis uh, and understanding trends and statistics that led me into the economic development role. And the economic development role seemed to give me a little bit more credibility so that I could then be considered for getting into Parliament. And now I'm using in Parliament the, the background of the, the media. So it's all interlinked and it all led to one another. But on the on the face of it, you'd think, well, that's a bizarre path for someone who wanted to get into Parliament. Yeah. The whole point of politics is communication, really. If you want to get people to support you, you've got to be able to articulate what you stand for and what you offer. But then also when people come into your office they're often in states of desperation they've often tried all available avenues and they're coming to you because they they don't know what else to do and frankly some of the situations that are presented to you are pretty harrowing and 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 can tug at the heartstrings and so you've got to be able to communicate in a way that is sensitive to their situation that is compassionate but is also particularly in times when you cannot help you're able to manage expectations in a way that doesn't leave them going away feeling more helpless and more forlorn. You know, it's quite a balance. So communication is so important. And I have to say, having seen your, I don't know what the word for it is, your uh, intro speech into Parliament. Maiden something, speech. Yeah. Maiden speech, yeah. It definitely came across that you're a good communicator and not every not every politician can actually communicate that effectively. So, Oh, that's very kind feedback. Thank you. That. A little bit younger, less wrinkles and, and less hair. I didn't have a beard then. But the, the one thing I didn't know is that, you know, when they come in, and, and it's all well and good when you're watching live because you know if there's any references to the speech previous or whatever, it makes sense. But when it's cut up and put online, I, I, I don't know why, but the first thing I said when I got up was in reference to the, there was the previous speech was Priyanka Radhakrishnan, good mate of mine in caucus and and then after her speech and celebration of that there was a troupe of Indian dancers up in the gallery and of course I made reference to that when I first stood up and it was all well and good for those that were there or those that were watching (laughs) but anyone watching afterwards was like mate that joke wasn't funny you know so (laughs) with absolutely no context so yeah well yeah yeah. no I don't remember the, the details just to do a bit of a segue one of the things I remember seeing in the news was when you were I think it was actually when you had just been elected in 2020 and you were standing alongside your trusty red ute. Now, I've heard that there's a bit of a backstory with that ute where someone tried to steal it. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And somehow that's made it onto my Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that qualifies as a highlight of my life, but um, here we have it. So, yeah, it was um, 
in the midst of the local body elections, actually, and uh, we have a couple of local trusts here in Masterton that the people, uh, trustees get elected on by the locals. And uh, I was in the running to be re-elected onto the Masterton Licensing Trust or the Community Trust that it is now. So anyway, I was at work and I just went over for lunch, walked over to the ute and chucked the key in the ignition. And my immediate thought was, Oh, I've got the wrong car because the ignition wasn't locked and then I noticed that there was someone in there and so I took a step back all apologetic and sheepish and stuff and I realised it was my ute and <laughs> that bloke shouldn't have been in there and um, yeah I opened the door and sort of uh, or shall we say inquired as to what he was up to and um, he got aggressive and he was in the midst of trying to jimmy the lock uh, the ignition so I'd sort of and he tried to get away and I grabbed him and there was a bit of a tussle and uh, got away again and so I sort of tackled him from behind in the middle of the street so here's this bloke running for re-election in a suit in one of the main streets of Mastered and sort of getting into fisticuffs with some bloke holding what I subsequently found out was a 10 inch plumber's spanner which could have done some damage if he'd uh, been able to wield that so um, yeah anyone who'd who'd played rugby with me would uh, find it amazing that I was able to catch up with someone and tackle someone from behind. But, um, yeah, I don't know what it was. I, I mean, there was a, a, the first time I'd ever thrown a punch in my life, and uh, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the type to get wound up. I'd like to think I've got a pretty even temperament, but when I saw him trying to steal my ute, I did get a little bit wound up, to be honest. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, he went to jail for a, quite a while because apparently he was quite a bad bastard and they've been chasing him for a while, so... Uh, yeah, in the end, it um, it worked out quite well. But uh, what was funny was when I was on the ground with the guy and holding him down, another fella came running across the road towards us quite quickly. And I just immediately, I don't know, because I was probably wound up or whatever, I just assumed that these two were together. So I jumped off this bloke and sort of prepared myself to have a crack at the other, the other one. And, and he said, no, nah, mate, I'm here to help. I was like, oh, sweet. So I jumped back on the other bloke and <laughs> <laughs> um, waited for the cops. Yeah, so... Oh, I just could have got out of hand, but no, it all worked out well in the end. I keep my ute, and uh, I've had it for oh, gee, when when was that? That was probably I don't know, 2013. So that was about eight years ago now, and I've still got the ute. But I've its days are numbered. I'm afraid to say it's just it's done 436,000 k's. Doesn't owe me a thing. It's served me very well. I go down to Wellington on a Monday night when Parliament's on. I'll do a full day here. And go down late on a Monday because uh, Parliament starts on Tuesday morning. I used to do the morning commute like everyone else on a Tuesday, but while the um, the wadded upper line is getting upgraded that we've funded, it it can cause delays, and it's not really a job I I can be late to. So I just go down on the Monday night and stay at the the flat that I've got down there, and then come back either Tuesday night or Friday morning after Parliament's finished. And so yeah, take the Ute, but I've ordered a new vehicle. Uh, just because it's struggling to get past 90 now and I think the time has come uh, quite fortuitous with the policy that's come out from the government it's it's uh, quite a strong coincidence really that that but I'm big on uh, holding on to vehicles until they are no longer efficient and, and work and so if the if the ute was still going I'd service it every 5,000 k's if it was still going fine I'd, I'd hold on to it for sure and it always said I would until it died I you know some people get a new vehicle every five or six years well over 24 years the amount of materials and energy that would have gone into those new cars I've saved so you know that's sort of how I look at it but since it's starting to go and 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 that policy's in place I've ordered a uh, plug-in hybrid all-wheel drive 
and so uh, that'll be able to allow me to be electric in the towns and hybrid in the countries and get out to uh, all the small towns but reduce my emissions by about 90 percent so i'm looking forward to that pretty good timing yeah it is actually a eh? yeah because uh, to be honest with you though if if, if the you had died eight months ago i just would have gone and got another you i just blindly would have got another you i love them when I bought the Red Ute, I needed it. I was doing fencing and all sorts of stuff, and it was real handy. Um, but it, this policy actually made me take a step back and say, do I actually need a ute? Like, do I really use it as a ute? And the answer was, well, no, I don't even get my own firewood anymore. You know, I just don't have time. So I thought, nah, bugger it, I'll get something a bit more appropriate and, and uh, go the plug-in hybrid route. On the um, the topic of driving around in the Red Ute, one of the things that fascinated me about your campaign is how you managed to turn a traditionally blue region red. Do you sort of know how you achieved that? Well, I think that for any people that are wanting to get out there and become an MP, the first thing they need to do is figure out what people want from their MP because they might think that they want someone that is all on top of policy and is going to go down there and be a parliamentarian uh, solely and look at drafting and influencing legislation. We all do that. But some people, that's their sole focus. But I learned very quickly that people in Wairarapa actually want an MP that they can see around, out and about, and they know if they needed them that they could just stop them in the street and have a yarn. And that's that's what I've tried to do when I first stood in 2014, which didn't go very well. Lost by 6,700-odd votes. Labour Party only polled 20% in the region. It was a baptism of fire into politics. But then three years later, reduced the majority down to 2,500. Uh, didn't win the seat, obviously, but got in on the list. And then I thought, well, this is my chance. It's all well and good to be a list MP and I think that list MPs are unfairly ridiculed for in the house it's all in jest but they still have an important role to perform when you walk in the doors of parliament you still only have the same number of votes as an electorate MP but ultimately the difference is that doesn't matter how many doors you knock on in parliament it never carries as much weight as when you're an electorate MP and when you're motivated by doing things for the region that's what I wanted so I had a chance in the three years as a list MP to prove myself and so held hundreds of street corner meetings in every town so that people knew that they had access to me. I didn't have the resources that the electorate MP had. The difference between the an electorate MP and a large electorate like Wairarapa, which gets extra funding, and a list MP is roughly four times higher. So I didn't have the resources to have two or three offices and I didn't have the resources to advertise like an electorate MP but I just took the approach that doesn't cost anything to go and say g'day so I just went and yeah just visited as many places and listened to them and tried to come up with solutions for whatever issues that they've got and and uh, yeah that that obviously helped but also I'd be very naive and, and arrogant I think to assume that it was all my own work Obviously, the Labour Party did incredibly well at the last election, in part because of its leadership in the COVID uh, lockdown. And so that would definitely have played a big part, no doubt about it. But there are certain we won every single electorate in the party vote in the country except for Epsom. 
And so there were obviously some national MPs that despite losing the party vote in their seat, won the seat. And I suppose it's probably fair to say that if I wasn't so keen to get out there and it wasn't so obvious to people that I'm 100% passionate about this region, then perhaps Wadadapa could have been one of those seats that lost the party vote but didn't win the seat. So, yeah. I mean, you must be doing something right because you can see from the trajectory of your three years is that between 2014 and 2017 there was a big shift in the right direction and there's no doubt that the whole Labour image would have helped you but you clearly are actually getting out there and people respect you for being a politician that actually gets out there. I think I heard some sort of feedback that your predecessor was never seen out and about and sort of people lost respect for him for not really being representative of the Wairapa. I think living in here helps too, is that, you know, like uh, when you go down to do your grocery shopping, you might bump into 20 people that you know or or at least know enough to say good day without stopping and having a yarn. And those sorts of things add up. Having family all across the electorate, when I go and visit them, then I'll be floating around in those towns and have been seen as well. And I think that makes a big difference because people do want to know that their MP is not only committed to the region and, and passionate about it and passionate about the people that live here, <clears throat> pardon me, but actually lives here themselves. So I think that does make a difference. But at the same time, I appreciate your words. And I was shocked and just so delighted to get the majority that I did uh, to get the most votes of any candidate from any party in the history of the seat was just incredible. But I have absolutely no room for complacency. I'm so conscious that the attitudes towards the two previous MPs in this seat were not great. One, because one wasn't connected to the community. The other, that they were never seen to be here. Whether that's true or not, I'm not going to comment, but I know that that was the perception. And so I can't rest on on anything. I need to be out and about and active. Otherwise, perhaps I could create a perception like that myself. So I'm in the process of acquiring a a mobile office, something that we've been planning for for a while. It's taken a while because, as I understand it, it's never been done before. But I'm taking the funding that I've got for a second office and have done a long-term hire arrangement on a camper van. And uh, we've converted the inside of the camper van to fit with the security requirements of parliamentary service. And so myself and a staff member on Mondays and Fridays primarily will be going uh, around and going and um, setting up in the smaller regions, smaller towns, uh, rural settlements that haven't either seen an MP very often or certainly haven't had them set up an office there. Because I could have one in Dannyverk or Waipak like they have done in the past. And the first thing is that people actually don't know that you're in there. You could be in there slaving away and meeting, meeting after meeting all day, and no one knows that you're inside. And if they don't know you're inside, they're not likely to pop in. But if I advertise in the local Bush Telegraph or the Midweek or the Central Hawke's Bay Mail that my mobile office and I will be parked up on the main street of Ekatahuna between 12 and 2, we don't know where because we'll have to wait and see where there's a park, but just have a look. It's big and it's red and it's got my face on it. You can't miss it sort of thing. Pop in. Come say good day. The jug will be on. Let's sit down and have a yarn, you know, and then, yeah, I think it'll go down well, but it'll, it, it, it's not so much about that. It's about, you know, 
I really do take this job seriously and it means a lot to me and I, I want to do a good job, you know. So I just think this is a good way to go about it. Yeah, I really respect that. And um, I was reading in a book recently that some of the best politics really is when you get genuine representation from the people in the region because they're the only people that actually know the problems that are relevant to, like, for example, Wairapa, is you being on the ground and actually listening to your electorate. That's the job of a politician. Oh, it's crucial, man, because, you know, you're down in, you're down in Parliament and you get caught in the bubble even, even though it doesn't matter how aware of it that you are, you always get caught up in it to some extent. You think that some minor victory, some procedural victory in a select committee or someone does a poor speech and it's all people talk about and then you start to think, oh, man, maybe this is a big thing. And it's not a big thing. No one cares, you know, and it's so important to remember that. Parliament is vitally important for our democracy and what goes on there does influence things. There's no doubt about that. And it's really important that we apply ourselves and make a considered speech on behalf of our regions. But ultimately, the people of Pahiatua or Waipukuro, Featherston, they're not coming to me in the street and saying great speech in Parliament, man. They're, they're coming to me and saying, look, we need help with access to ACC or, or we'd like you to talk to the council about this issue or something like that. Or they come and they say, you know, we really like what the government's doing, but have you thought about it this way because it's affecting my business in this way? If you just adjusted that, then we'd be all good. That's the stuff that really matters. And that's where being in a role of an MP puts you in a unique environment to be able to help these people. It probably shouldn't be like that, you know, especially the individuals that have been battling with a government department or, or an organisation for so long, trying to get an answer and haven't been able to. They come to me. I ask the same question on behalf of this person and I get an answer just because I've got two particular letters after my name. I always find that frustrating. I say, why didn't you just give it to the person in the first place? But look, that's the way it is. So I just say to people, come in. You know, may as well use it to our advantage. We'll um, see where we can help. It's quite topical, of course, to talk about the hell of a protest. Given that you've got a lot of farming in your background, can you give an insight as to your perspective on the hell of a protest? Yeah, um, I made the decision not to attend because I was fearful of how the protests would be perceived and the, the damage that that could do to the reputation of farmers. But I felt uncomfortable about that, so I felt um, that I should explain myself and, and provide a, a post on social media, both Facebook and, and Twitter, which was subsequently picked up by the country on, through the Herald website. And uh, in that post, I tried to outline... My commitment to primary sector and a, and a deep, genuine and sincere uh, desire to see them and rural communities be sustainable and thrive. And then as a government MP, outline the benefits of the government policies and, and the reasons why what we're doing. But also take an opportunity to highlight that I, I genuinely believe that the vast majority of farmers are on board with that and are actually doing so much and they don't get enough credit for it. And I don't mean from the government, I just mean in general. 
And so, look, I've I've come under a bit of heat about that decision, not necessarily what I wrote, but the decision not to attend the protests, and, and I've been reflecting on that. But ultimately, what has come about, the debate after the protest, in some ways, it's been to some extent what I feared it would be, that there are, even those that protested, aren't necessarily saying that what the government is doing wrong across the board. There were seven main issues listed. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, you pick out a protest that they're going to be passionate about some of them, but not necessarily all of them, or they might agree with all of them, but they're more passionate about others. And so there are some things that they get where the government is going, but they might want us to slow down a little bit, or they might want us to tinker around the edges on some particular things to make them more practical. And I totally get that, and, and I'm I'm keen to listen. And if there is anyone from Wairarapa that is watching, listening to this uh, podcast, I've never said no to a, a request to meet with a farmer, and I never will. So um, get in touch. I've, I've That's... That's what I've said to everyone that's got in touch with me after the protest is let's meet. And heaps of them have taken that up because I, I suppose they they didn't expect either a reply or an offer to meet. I get that I've got some work to do to convince some farmers that I actually do care. And uh, part of that is because when it comes to this debate, there are some, and usually on the extremes of this debate, that are talking across each other. There's some people that are blaming all farmers for uh, the degradation of our rivers. They're tarring all farmers with the same brush, and that's just factually incorrect and totally unfair. And then there's some farmers that participated in the protest that let the others down by getting distracted with signs calling the Prime Minister a commie bitch or equating her to Stalin, or I saw one that depicted her mounting a sheep. Well, that, I mean, that's just disgusting. There's, there's just no place for that. But farmers know that, and, uh, and and those guys are the very, very small minority and do not represent the farmers. And those ones that are making comments on Facebook or Twitter being unfair to farmers do not represent the government. But what that says to me is there's a big middle ground where we can actually continue to work together and let's not get distracted. Because what happens is, I think anyway, people see those signs and they switch off and farmers hear those comments and they think, well, everyone's against us. And this is where we've got to this point. And I just think it was avoidable, but it is fixable. I think we've also got to remember that social media has this ability to sort of focus on the worst 5% of every group or the the loudest voices. And I'm sure that there would have been a majority of the farmers that were in the howl of protests that might have had little issues. I would say most farmers would agree that fencing off the waterways isn't a bad idea. They might just have a different um, idea of how it's going to be funded or the timeframes in which they need to do it. But unfortunately, with how social media is, you get the picture of Jacinda and the horrible comments and the people then switch off. Yeah, totally. They think that that 95% of farmers um, have that same view. That's right. And I think that that's my one takeaway because the wider upper region is one that has traditionally been reliant solely on farming well the farming still contributes a significant part of our economy and will always be vitally important but our economy has diversified quite a bit and as a result 
South Wairarapa, their economy is very much driven by Wellington and tourism and hospitality and the fact that we have Wellingtonians moving over to South Wairarapa, which is driving construction. And so as the demographics of the electorates has changed, so too has the viewpoints. And I have the extremities of this argument within this electorate. So as their MP, I need to try and balance that and bring that debate together here locally so that we can actually come to a better understanding. That was the approach that I tried to take with the protests. It's gone down very well with some and hasn't gone down well at all with others. So it's up to me, like I say, not to shy away from what I believe, because I still stand by what I said, but also prove to people that the very first statement in my comment that uh, declaring my passion for primary sector is true, and that's up to me to prove to them. I genuinely believe that you care. You can't fake um, genuineness. But one of the comments that I guess comes through from a lot of farmers or the impression that they get from um, the Labour government is not really caring about the primary sector. An example I can think of quite recently is the Ashburton floods where the farmers were screaming out for financial relief and I think they got, uh, I don't—I can't remember the exact figures, but... 500,000. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was half a mil, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's sort of situations like that where they feel like they're not supported. And we've got to be honest here that Labour's traditional base is definitely not farmers. What would you say in terms of the the impression that farmers get that Labour perhaps doesn't care about them? It's 100% true to say that traditionally Labour has not won rural seats. It's not true to say that farmers haven't supported Labour in the past or that there isn't a significant or not a non-significant number of farmers that do support Labour. But we do know that we're on the back foot right from the start and we're going to have to work twice as hard to get half the amount of support that the National Party would. We know that. And we know that when National say something, it carries more credibility amongst many farmers than it does when we say something. I come out announcing support for farmers for waterways and, and then I get a comment on, on Facebook from a local farmer, more Labour lies. Well, no, it's not a lie. It's like literally a government <laughs> announcement, you know. So this is what we're up against. But also this is politics and it's not. we're not complaining. It's just the way it is. With the Ashburton floods, for example, it has always been the case, as far as I understand, that there is an initial payment, then the damage is assessed, and then the money comes after that, which actually makes sense. So the $500,000 was only the initial payment to get things off the ground. Then the damage was assessed, and it was followed by $4 million. And I'm still getting that figure of $500,000 as an example of the government not providing for provincial New Zealanders. So there was a lot of media there, attention. There's a reason for that. The media gives a lot of attention to the $500,000, and I quite literally haven't seen a news article about the four mil. Yep. Yeah, that, that, I mean, there's probably truth to that, but at the same time, we need to take responsibility for that. It's our story to tell. We need to make sure we let people know, and it's not good enough to just put out a press release. We know that, so we've got to go out there and talk to people and, and let them know that it was followed up by 400,000. It is a little bit of mischievous activity from the National Party. They know that this is how this works. I see Judith Collins come out and, and criticise the $600,000 for Westport. There's no way that that's all that Westport's going to get. This is a catastrophic event, and I want to take the opportunity to send my thoughts and prayers to the people that are affected in Westport. They will get significant government assistance, 
But that 600000 is just to get things off the ground until the total cost of the damage is assessed. Uh, there is a criteria that it's not just a figure that's plucked out of the sky. There's a criteria that has to be met, and then that level then corresponds to a certain amount of funding. I do actually find it quite frustrating when politicians choose to make a deal of something like, for example, that $600,000 to Westport when they know that that's not the full story. Mm. Mm. You know, that's just politicians being politicians as opposed to doing that's what's right. best for the people. I think the the other recent example, which is also relevant to this electorate, is the $2.75 million for a uh, meth program in Waipawa. Now, that's been billed as $2.75 million going to the mongrel mob. It's not going to the mongrel mob. They know it's not. They also know that it is based exactly on a program that they themselves put together in 2017, and yet they have got huge amount of online material or, or uh, comments in the media about the government giving $2.75 million to the mongrel mob. It's just not factually true, but that's politics and we know the game and we're just going to have to this is why it's so important to go out there and talk to people because then you can clarify these things there's also got to be a little bit of accountability on the media because i I saw a headline which was something along the lines of labor gives 2.75 mil to mongrel mob run organization or, or i can't remember the exact details but if it was reported more honestly it wouldn't really be a news story yeah, I, I certainly um, don't want to suggest that the media is being dishonest, but when the story broke and it was that the money was going straight to the mongrel mob, I was shocked and I was really angry because like, that's just not what we need to be doing. But as always is the case, the devil's in the detail and when you find out that it is a third-party organisation that all the government departments, including the local police, are behind it, They take the view that this is going to get individuals and families off meth and out of gangs and and stay away from crime, and that it's based on a pilot that worked. When you find that out, it's like, okay, all right, well, they know more than I do. Let's back it, you know. And also, it's going to be reviewed four times a year. So if it's not performing, the funding gets cut. And nine times out of ten, when I explain this to people, particularly up in Central Hawke's Bay, part of the electorate, who are pretty wound up about it, they actually get it, but when it's just put down as funding the mob, then uh, they're rightfully angry. My barber brought it up yesterday, and I explained to him, and he went from being angry to, you know, okay, fair enough, yeah. I mean, Labor would have to be silly to be giving 2.75 mil straight to the mongrel mob. Yeah. It's not good politics. No, it's not, and it also feeds into the narrative that's been created that we're soft on crime, which is just nonsense. Like there's $500 million have been seized from organised crime in recent times, and that's what funds this program to then get people off drugs. I mean, ultimately, there is a reason to approach it. Like Tony Blair said back in the day, tough on crime, but also tough on the causes of crime. You've got to have a focus on rehabilitation and you've got to have a focus on prevention. You know, America has tried the hard approach, tried it for many, many years, the highest incarceration rate in the world and the highest reoffending rate. So, you know, it doesn't work. Why would we want to pursue that? Let's actually stop it altogether. 100% agree. And for those people that think that tough on crime is the way to go, or especially in terms of how we treat prisoners, 
America's got the highest rates of incarceration, but then in Norway, their prisons are effectively like a retirement village with a wall around it, and prisoners are treated like human beings, and they have the lowest rates of reincarceration. I mean, this tough on crime thing, if we've been historically tough on crime, it clearly isn't working. That, so we've that, got that, to change that, it. That's exactly right. And and I, it's got to be evidence-based. You know, we are standing alone in this country as the only developed country in the world that hasn't required a second form of nationwide lockdown or statewide lockdown. And that was because we followed the evidence. And I think that COVID should show us that when there are experts in the field and that they can demonstrate that something works, that we should put aside any preconceived ideas or ideological views that we have and actually just pursue the evidence. I've got no issue with people that have demonstrated violence or committed horrible crimes um, being kept away from society and ensuring that society is safe, but particularly those that have a minor offence, they still have potential, they've still got a life to live, Why shouldn't we work with them deeply and actually identify the reasons behind this and get them out of the groups that are causing them to do these things and actually give them a chance at life? There's always that line, isn't there, that once it's crossed, you can't really be too lenient. But ultimately, up to that point, we as a society owe it to everyone to do what we can to try to get them out of that spiral. Yeah. And the worst place you can put a teenager that's doing minor crimes is prison. Because it's the most violent place in society. Absolutely, but also it's the biggest recruitment for gangs. Because we all know the drivers of crime. Poverty is a big one. Isolation, a disconnection from family or community. You, You do something silly, you go to jail, and then the only thing you've got is people that are wanting to wrap around you and put a patch on your back. Well, I don't support or condone any of the activities of the gang, it's, it's, it's a real plight on our society, not just because of what they do, but also because what it represents. But can you blame a young person in that circumstance without any whānau support wanting to seek something like that? So no wonder they recruit in the prisons. You know, it's a real worry. Yeah. Well, I appreciate we're running a little bit short on time, Kieran, but I'll just quickly ask, where can we find out more about you and your caravan is it purchased yet uh yeah so the rental agreement has been signed we sort of took the opportunity because we knew that camper vans aren't as high in demand at the moment with no international tourists so it's sort of quite fortuitous in that respect we took the opportunity because i suspect when there's tourists flocking into the country every day people would be less likely to want to um, hire out a camper van for two and a half years but they were open to that so it worked quite well but if yeah look you can jump online search my name the facebook and the twitter comes up i i'm not overly political it's not how i tend to run things i'll talk about what we're doing i won't tend to have a crack at the opposition and i just talk about what i'm up to locally try to throw in a few silly jokes now and again and that's always a good way to 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 see what i'm up to but you know if anyone wants to get in touch about anything just flick me an email karen.mcanulty at parliament.govt.nz and uh yeah we'll get back to you awesome karen well thanks again for coming on the podcast well mate thanks for reaching out thanks for tuning in to pod defend new zealand you can find us on twitter at nz underscore pod 
or Instagram at nz underscore pod. If you're feeling extra generous, please give us five stars on the podcast app. Kia ora.